0: Everyone, welcome back to here and Apologetics. So glad you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Craig Evans, a distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Baptist University. Uh, today we're going to be talking about his recent book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, and all kinds of fun questions about what can we learn from the Gospels and the earliest manuscripts about Jesus. So Dr. Evans, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Zach.
0: Awesome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation um, and just talking about what can we learn about Christ through the Gospels and the early manuscripts. So to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and like what got you interested in things like this?
1: Well, I did my uh, PhD about 40 years ago in Southern California at Claremont, and most of my career for 35 years of it, I taught in Canada, and only in the last five years, I've returned to the United States. I'm a dual citizen, and I teach at Houston Baptist <laughs> University, as you just said. I did my PhD in biblical studies. It had a New Testament tilt, but my dissertation was on Isaiah. I was very interested in how the Old Testament functions in the New. I still have that interest. Fascinated with the prophets, uh, among them Isaiah especially, but uh, also very interested in how Jesus interacted with the prophets and especially Isaiah, not just in Hebrew but also the way it was um, paraphrased uh, in Aramaic, which is called the Targum. Well, this all became very interesting and important when the third quest, as it came to be called, the third quest of the historical Jesus got underway with a lot of noise in the 1980s. And one of the things about the quest was Jesus, uh, you know, should be interpreted as, as a Jewish person in the Jewish world, and that would include using making use of and engaging the Old Testament. So it turned out my own training at Claremont uh, in the PhD program equipped me to be part of this dialogue, and, and I was. And I was also, I had the good fortune of studying with the two original Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls scholars, John Trevor and William Brownlee. And so Jesus and the Scrolls became a big deal. So that's what got me into manuscripts and eventually on into New Testament manuscripts, which is what this book is all about. So that's my background, and it's been a long journey. It's been exciting. It's been fun to get to know scholars around the world, to travel around the world, to actually see the manuscripts, to go to archaeological dig sites, see the artifacts. And I think, uh, Zach, one of the things, the big takeaway is when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about Bible stories, biblical history, biblical teaching, it's not just air. It isn't just words. It's not just stuff passed on that like urban legends or something. <clears throat> but it's very much, you know, there's artifact. There's these are old documents. They do exist. People were reading them two thousand years ago. And so there is actual, you know, factual material, artifactual material that backs it up. And that makes that for me it's personally a game changer. So we're not building castles in the air, but we're on solid ground.
0: Mm, That's super interesting. Um, So starting off with looking at like reliability, um, how reliable would you say the ancient manuscripts are? And like, can we trust the authenticity of the New Testament?
1: Yes, of course we can trust them. And I say that uh, for the reason I just said a moment ago, it isn't because people ask us to trust it or some pastor or priest says so in church. It's we have the documents. Mm. And, and, and of course, having ancient documents, you know, it's not just the Bible. I mean, if we have ancient documents relating to all kinds of texts from antiquity, Greek texts, Latin texts, but uh, Hebrew, Babylonian, I mean, you name it. And so the biblical record compares very well. It doesn't just compare well, it's the best. There is no other literary tradition where you have so many manuscripts and why is that important? It's because you can compare them, put them side by side, different manuscripts. And so they are, you know, they're manuscript. You know, manu is hand, right? Script is handwriting. So they're handwritten documents. And when people write things out by hand, just as surely as when people today type or keyboard, they do make mistakes. And when you're copying things, you know, your eye looks at a manuscript and you look back and you write it down. You you can leave a word out or you can leave out a whole line. Sometimes you repeat a line. So there are mistakes that are made in manuscripts, but no two scribes in two manuscripts make exactly the same mistake. And that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of it. And so if you've got 10 copies or 100 copies or more than that, and you compare them, you can sniff out where the mistakes have been made. Usually they're pretty obvious. And then you know how to correct it. So you're always able to go back to what the original text was. So we have so many witnesses. It's not like some documents where we we don't even have a complete copy. And we know some parts are missing, but we can't restore it. Well, the Bible's not like that at all. We have so many ancient copies. We can compare. We can restore. And so, when you buy an English translation of the Bible—the Hebrew Old Testament, and the Greek New Testament—you you, you can be confident that you've you know you've got the text the way it was written a long time ago.
0: Mm, that's super interesting. Um, I do want to say for anyone listening, we will be doing a little bit of Q and A at the end. Um, but for now, like, why do you believe that the Gospels were written for Christians? It's a very interesting idea. Um, so, what are your thoughts there?
1: Well, we assume that the Gospels were uh, written for. Um, Christians, because they would be the ones interested in hearing the story. You know, Christendom is 2,000 years old now. And so the Jesus story has been talked about uh, for about, what, 1,990 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's a little bit old hat to most Christians. If you attend church with any regularity, if you've read the Gospels a few times, you know the details pretty well. But for the very first generation, they didn't all know the details. Jesus' followers knew, knew these things real well. His disciples, of course, knew them very well. But uh, if you lived in Greece or you lived in Italy or North Africa, you know, what do you know? And you hear one or two stories about Jesus. You hear about the words of institution at the Last Supper. You hear about his death, his resurrection. You hear that he's healed people. You've heard something about him being a great teacher, but you don't know the story. And so it was important for these uh, Gospels to be written and circulated. And that's what happened. And that's how people began to to know the story of Jesus better. Uh, it was because of these Gospels. That's why they had to be written down. And, of course, they had to be copied again and again and again. And so they were spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond.
0: Mm So it's interesting um, in the book, y- you talk a little bit about like um, the people like requesting um, Mark specifically, like according to tradition um, to write down like the sayings of Peter and stuff. So can you talk a little bit about like what that is and kind of like how it might play into like the gospel being written for Christians?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, people were eager. Jesus's teaching was compelling. People wanted to hear it. And uh, it's one thing to hear, you know, word of mouth. And that is the primary way of teaching back in antiquity. And Mm -hmm. some teacher would speak and his disciples would listen. And they'd hear him talk again and again and again. And then they'd go out and speak. But it was better if the teachers themselves, the apostolic teachers, and their right-hand aides and assistants, if they'd committed to writing And then you could disseminate it further, and and you'd have something a little more stable. It was less likely for the teaching to evolve into forms and, and emphases that were not authentic and were not really original to what Jesus was talking about. Jesus gave his disciples plenty of latitude. He wanted them to take his teaching and apply it. He says so in Matthew 13. That's the way pedagogy, in fact, was done. In antiquity, and, and not everybody understands that, mm. and so they see a discrepancy where Jesus's words are paraphrased a little bit, and they think, "Oh, that's a mistake, or there's something wrong." Well, no, that's that's how Jesus taught his disciples. That's how I teach my students. I don't want them simply to repeat my words verbatim. I want to make sure they understand what I'm talking about, and they can put my word, my teachings, my thoughts into their words. That's what Jesus did. And so there is some interpretive paraphrase in the Gospels, and that's just fine. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Christians know not only what Jesus originally said when he spoke in Aramaic in the year 29 in Israel, but they can hear him now speak in Greek, paraphrase a little bit, so they understand better given the time and place they live in. Mm, That's, That's the beauty of the Gospels. That's why there are four of them and not just one.
0: Mm. So one of the interesting things you talk about is like the book of Matthew enjoying like um, what you call like pride and place in the emerging um, world of the gospel. So what's going on with the the book of Matthew here um, in your research? Well, you know, the
1: interesting thing about Matthew is of the three synoptic gospels, you know, there are four gospels, but three of them we call synoptic because they can be seen together. And that's Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're very similar. They cover very similar ground. There's a lot of overlap. And uh, of the three, only Matthew's an apostle. And I think that's one of the reasons why Matthew is very important. The other reason, too, is Matthew is closely connected to the synagogue, closely connected to the Old Testament, wants to show how Jesus fulfills both prophecy and law. And so the prophets, uh, you know, the law and the prophets, that's very important, Uh, to the Jewish people, and that's where Christianity started, right, within the synagogue, within the Jewish world. So I'm not surprised that Matthew very quickly by the end of the first century was, you know, had pride of place and maintained that for hundreds of years. And that doesn't mean that, like, Augustine was correct. He thought Mark was an abbreviation of Matthew, and I know that's actually he's got it reversed. Matthew's an expansion of Mark. And that's a good thing because Mark is connected to Peter. Papias, you know, uh, he relays that tradition. The Apostle John, the Elder John, taught that, uh, you know, Peter spoke and Mark wrote things down. And that became the principal source for what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke.
0: Mm. Yeah, so one of the things that's really interesting here, Um yeah. Is we have the synoptic, but then we also have like the Gospel of John, which in many ways people can read it, and it can seem very different than um, this synoptic gospel. So, what's the like the going on with like the ongoing study in the Gospel of John among like biblical so- scholars and such?
1: Yeah, John's uh, really complicated and a difficult one, simply because uh, you know it's like he's going in different directions. On the one hand, Jesus sounds so different from the Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the Johannine Jesus seems different from the synoptic Jesus, you might say. And uh, so about the time you think, oh, well, maybe John is a totally different kind of a genre, you know, very mystical, metaphorical, parabolic, or whatever. And then, surprise, uh, John is loaded with uh, topographical and geographical features, place names, uh, very accurate information about Jerusalem in the first century and its environs. So much so that archaeologists, any archaeologist that's interested in first century Jerusalem, wouldn't think of doing work without consulting John, because John is so full of accurate information about what Jerusalem was like, these various landmarks, pools, the temple, all those sort of things. Mm. So John, on the one hand, exhibits great verisimilitude, that is, it, it just reveals so accurately the way things were, and yet Jesus comes across in such a different way, speaks so metaphorically. And so I think what we have there is, in the synoptics, it's very Petrine, Peter, Peter tradition, these are his stories, Matthew, Mark, mm-hmm. and Luke make use of them in the way they write their respective gospels. But you have a very different author behind John. Uh, you know, some think it could be connected to Lazarus, uh, somebody who's not from Galilee, somebody who lives in Bethany, somebody who was personally acquainted with the servants of the high priest, a person who's an eyewitness, and that's what John says. And a person, and if it is, if the fourth gospel, even if it is connected to John, if it's also connected to Lazarus, they're just talking about somebody raised from the dead. And maybe that's why he has such an interest in the whole question of life. And to believe in Jesus is to receive eternal life. And, you know, he could be ex- speaking from experience. So I think he's, he's had a very different life experience. He lives in a different place. He reflects uh, just a whole different tradition. And that's why John is so different in so many ways. And yet it's eyewitness testimony. So I see it very valuable. You have the northern tradition, the Galilean tradition, Petrine tradition, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have this distinctive southern tradition connected to—we call it John, but uh, but it's some someone from the south, maybe Lazarus or somebody like that—and I think that just adds to the testimony. That just enriches it. So it's not just one stream of tradition, but we got two very important. Uh, streams of tradition talking about jesus and i think that's quite significant in a good way
0: mm. so in your view then um like with like who wrote the the gospel of John because what people always wonder um would you say that you'd lean towards maybe like someone like lazarus writing it or do you think it was like john like like what do you think um with regards to, like who wrote the go- the gospel according to john
1: yeah well you know the church has always said john mm-hmm And so there's a reason for that. And I don't think the early church made up names. That just doesn't make any sense. Because if you're just going to make up names, like, you know, heretics in the second and third centuries who created later Gospels, they made up names. So they claim, well, you know, this is the Gospel according to Thomas. Thomas wrote it. Or this is the Gospel according to Judas. Or this is the Gospel according to Mary or Philip or somebody else like that. And they will often take uh, these fictional names and insert them in the narrative itself. You know, so, you know, I John was on the Mount of Olives praying and suddenly the heavens lit up and it's Jesus, mm. you know, and so they're really wearing it on their sleeve. Their at ap- ap- claims of apostolic authorship. Well, the authentic early first century gospels don't do that. They, it's all about Jesus. Here's what he taught. And this is what happened. It's not all about who's the writer. And so when the early church says, well, Mark is the author of Mark, I think that's authentic because if you're going to make it up, why not say it's Peter? Peter is the voice. He is the teaching behind Mark. So why not just call it the gospel of Peter? Well, it's because I think the early church realized that, no, it was Mark who actually wrote it. And so there's a modesty there. There's There's a commitment to truth. And when you think about Matthew, who's Matthew? He's a name on a list. There's only one story in the Gospels, and that's Matthew, the tax collector. When he decides to follow Jesus, he has a reception, invites people to come and meet Jesus. That's the only story we have, Matthew. He does not show up in the book of Acts. He's a name on a list. And then when it comes to Luke, who's Luke? He's not one of the original disciples. He's a traveling companion with Paul and his uh, third journey second, maybe, and third journey. So you get these we, first-person, plurals sections and Acts. Well, you know, he's who's Luke? You know, he's not one of the original 12. So you see this modesty in selecting names. So it doesn't strike me as pulling names out of an impressive hat mm. so the Gospels are kind of glossed and upgraded. There seems to be a commitment, however modest it may be, a commitment to truth. And if the truth is modest, so be it. You have that in the resurrection accounts. You know, fictional stories from a later time will exaggerate the resurrection witnesses like the Gospel of Peter, which I talk about in my book, Mm. or the the Acts of Pilate. These are later 2nd, 3rd century fictions that greatly embellish the stories. But the 1st century Gospels say, well, it was women, the Mm -hmm. first to find the tomb empty and meet Jesus. That's Mary Magdalene. Well, boy, that doesn't sound like, you know, anybody's writing fiction to impress skeptics. This is just telling the truth. And it was the fact that it was Mary Magdalene who was the first to, to go to the tomb, find it empty, and see the risen Jesus. So this um, a commitment to, to, to telling the truth, even if the truth isn't overly impressive, that impresses me and in contrast to later writings that exaggerate and embellish.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, moving on here in your book, you, you deal with like the oldest manuscripts um, inside the Christian canon, but then also like looking outside of the Christian canon. Um, so like in, in this whole book, which is 500 pages, it's, it's a lot of great stuff in there. Uh, what are some of the conclusions that you come to in this book?
1: Well, um, a lot of conclusions. One, we, where we started, the manuscripts for the New Testament Gospels are numerous, and they're very early, and they're of good quality. The idea that these were written by sloppy people who don't know what they're doing is just absurd. The evidence doesn't support that. The other thing, Zach, that's very important to know, and this is so key, when the first scribes that were making copies, they didn't have any motivation to change anything. The idea that somebody, the Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code kind of thinking, that somebody would alter the gospel text to jazz it up a little bit, there's no evidence of that. Hmm and you know the orthodoxy is officially defined in the 4th century well how would anyone know at the end of the 1st century or beginning of the 2nd century how would anyone know what orthodoxy would be eventually settled on they wouldn't know how would they know which writings would make up a new testament how would they know there would be a new testament so this whole idea this conspiracy idea of somebody messing around with the Gospels to change them or to choose certain ones. Ultimately, behind it is anachronism. It's as though somebody in the second century knows the thinking of the fourth century. Well, of course, no one did. And so it's really silly. The other thing, Zach, that's that's a, a real game changer, we have reason to believe that most of these scribes in the first and second century were professional scribes. They weren't necessarily Christian at all so they don't have a dog in the fight why would some professional scribe his his only qualification is he's a good scribe he doesn't make very many mistakes or well, is he going to change what he's copying how would he he has no motivation to make any changes he wouldn't know how to make any changes why would he do that so he makes a copy of matthew as accurately and carefully as he can same with mark same with luke same with john So, yeah, that's why I think there's no question about it. We have a lot of manuscripts. They're very early. We can compare them and make sure, you know, what the original reading is. And the early scribes, for the most part, they were just professional scribes, and they wouldn't know how to make any changes even if it even occurred to them.
0: So there you Mm -hmm. go. That's interesting. Um, So like talking about these professional scribes um, who are copying the Gospels, like if they don't have like, so to speak, like a horse in the race, they're just like professional scribes. Why are they copying these Gospels? Um, They're paid to.
1: That's Mm. their job. That's why. It's what they do. It's their job. Mm. And they're paid per line. And, Mm. uh, And so that's what they do. And so they're looking for work. And, and so they're not top-end scribes. They're not the guys that would do beautiful calligraphy, beautiful handwriting, uh, but they're, they're kind of B-plus uh, mm. scribes. And it's only when Christianity comes into its own in the 4th century and beyond that the budget budgets get bigger. And so really good scribes, and they're writing on leather, you know, parchment, you know, in the 4th century mm. and 5th century. But up to then it's just cheaper papyrus and it's not it's not an A scribe who would charge a whole lot of money but they're they're workmanlike they're competent scribes who are accurate and they, they're legible and so I'd call them B plus scribes and they're the ones that are hired. And yeah some of them might well be uh, might have been Christian but most of them were not
0: they're just professional scribes hired to do a job. I like that B plus scribes. It's a great way of thinking about it. Um, So moving on here, like um, in the book, you talk about like the oldest witnesses to like the life of Jesus. Um, It's like, what are these oldest witnesses and like, why I think they're trustworthy because you were talking about that um, a little bit earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, the oldest witnesses are the gospels. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm hoping readers will get that through their heads. It's not like what Dan Brown wants you to believe. The oldest witnesses are not gospels that were excluded the, the Gospels that never made their way into the canon weren't written until the second and third centuries, so they're later. The, the Gospels that are in the canon are the oldest ones. Uh, the so-called Q source, I think there was a source, you know, of Jesus' sayings floating around, you know, nurtured and preserved and uh, cultivated by church leaders in churches. Mm-hmm. And that the, the teaching of Peter that Mark wrote down, that, that stuff gets merged together. And that's how you end up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they have so much common material. Mm-hmm. That's the early stuff. And that's what we have in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, later stuff becomes new versions, supplementing it, changing it, introducing new ideas. And uh, because they had just, you know, the church was losing, some parts of the church losing its Jewish connection. And after these three Jewish wars, the first one, 66 to 70, the second one, 115, 117, third one, the Bar Kokhba War, 132 to 135, there there was anti-Semitism. It's kind of like in the world today. There was anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire. And so there were branches of people that were kind of of in the church that, oh, this Jesus guy is interesting, but let's make him less Jewish. I don't like the Jewish thing. Let's introduce phil- Greek philosophy. Let's have Jesus sound more like Plato. And so, you know, you had guys writing new gospels. And they're a mixture of the Jesus tradition, but a mixture of stuff that who knows where that came from. And the church was wise and said, you know, we're not, we're not including stuff like that. And by the way, when I say include, that's anachronistic, really. Uh, what The beginnings of canon was the decision on whether or not it would be read in church, and so mm-hmm. you have you have bishops who would write and say to the pastors, "Yeah, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the church, and Paul's letters. Go ahead and read them. That's good. You should, but don't read the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, or don't read this other this Gnostic mm-hmm. stuff. It's not edifying. It's full of false teaching. So that's the beginning of canon."
0: Mm, it's super interesting. Um, so, like, looking especially like with regards to the gospels, like, how accurate is the dating? Like, when would you date these gospels? Um, and like, when they're written, and like, how accurate do you think that that would be?
1: Well, you know, Zach, when we talk about dating, we're talking about two things, really. We're talking about dating the artifacts themselves, and then we're talking about dating when we think the person wrote the text originally. And we don't have the original document. If we had the autograph, that would sure help. But carbon-14 always gives you a plus or minus about 50 years. Uh, And so that doesn't help a whole lot. So dating the artifacts, yeah, that's why we can say we have a few fragments of the New Testament gospels that date to the second century. Mm -hmm. One fragment, P52, it's just a couple of verses of John chapter 18, could date to the first half of the second century. So in other words, you know, the 120s to 140s or 50s, somewhere in there, maybe. Uh, then we have a few other uh, fragments, Matthew and, and one or two other fragments, maybe John, the date to the end of the second century. But so you have to get into the third century before you have big chunks of text and all of the text. So that's one kind of way of dating. But the other word, you know, the other idea of dating is, well, when did these guys write these things down? Mm, yeah. There are various ways of evaluating that, and scholars do disagree. I tend to tilt toward early. I didn't at the beginning of my career, but in more recent years, I tilt earlier. So I think uh, all th- all three synoptic Gospels were written before the Jewish war started in 66. About John, I'm not sure. John, I think I'm going with the traditional date of the 90s. That's what the church fathers always said, but I don't know. John could be earlier. John, John could be 60s also. I just don't know. My mind is open on that. But the Gospel of Thomas, you know, I've I've argued in my book two chapters in the book. Uh, Thomas can't be dated any earlier than 180. So it's late second century. Gospel of Peter should not be dated any earlier than 140 or 150. And most of the other writings are later still.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Um, so one interesting question here is like the idea of, uh, we'll get to Thomas and Peter hopefully in a minute, but like to what extent did like non-Christian and scribes and scholars trust the early earliest texts? Like we'd assume that like the Christians trust them, but like what were the non-Christians um, thinking about like the early texts of like the gospels and, and such?
1: Oh, and nobody... Re- <clears throat> <clears throat> <Excuse me. clears throat> Nobody really de- dated, uh, debated uh, the, the dates of the Gospels. You know, the critics, the non-Christian critics of Christianity, like Celsus, they didn't. They, they knew the Gospels were written in the first century. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't even doubt the general reliability and truthfulness of the Gospels. They the, what they disputed, like Celsus, you know, Celsus is writing one sixty to one seventy somewhere in there. And what Kelsus is responding to is the idea that, uh, well, because Jesus performed miracles, because he walked on water, uh, because his teaching was uh, excellent, um, Kelsus say, yeah, okay, maybe he performed a few miracles. Maybe he was a good teacher, but that doesn't make him the son of God. doesn't hmm. make him the Savior. Uh, and so so Kelsus didn't dispute the general truthfulness. I'm sure he did dispute the truthfulness of a few stories, but The general truthfulness of the Gospels, he didn't dispute. He didn't say, you know, Matthew didn't write Matthew or the Gospels weren't as early as we think or they weren't written in the first century. He didn't say that stuff. Uh, He ignored the Gospel of Thomas. He probably didn't even know Thomas existed when he did his writing because Thomas probably didn't exist yet. But uh, Celsus just simply disagreed with the Christian conclusions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Christian inferences, you know, and he, Kelsus was skeptical about the resurrection. He seems open to the possibility that there was a resurrection, but uh, um, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think Kelsus just just says, you know, that's not enough to claim to be God. That's not quite enough to be claim to claim that you're the um, Son of God and Savior just because you performed a few miracles. That's that's the interesting thing. But this other stuff, when the Gospels were written or who wrote them, I don't think Celsus, as a skeptic, questioned any of that.
0: Hmm. that. To me, that's just super interesting to think about, and I'm sure it is the same for you and everyone else listening. Um, I just want to say in about like 15, 20 minutes, we're going to go to a little bit of Q&A on the way out, so if you have questions, um, we'll get to a little bit at the end, or if you send out a Super Chat, you can support the channel and stuff. That always helps. Um, but one of the things you talk about is – is this idea of the Jewish Gospels. Um, so what do you mean by that and what's going on there?
1: Well, there were some very early, in fact, those are the earliest Gospels that, are, that follow the New Testament Gospels or the ones we call Jewish Gospels. Mm-hmm. They seem to be connected to Matthew. They seem to be new versions of Matthew. Uh, you know, Zach, it's real hard to evaluate them because they, they don't survive. All we have are quotations by church fathers uh, well into the 2nd century and typically much later, 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh, by the way, here's this great story. It's found in Matthew chapter whatever. And there's a different version of it that's in the Gospel of the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. We don't have the Gospel of the Hebrews. So then you get this part of this different version is quoted. That's all. And so you might have 12 or 15 quotations of the Gospel of the Hebrews or the Gospel of the Nazarenes or the Gospel of the Ebionites, and you just get a handful of quotations. And the reason those quotations were even quoted was because they're different. Mm. And think about that, you know. So here's a document that's lost. We don't know how long it is. We don't know what all's in it, and all that survives of it are a dozen quotations of passages where it's different from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And Mm. so what I infer from that is that it probably was very similar to Matthew and Mark. And the church fathers just found them interesting because they happened to be a little bit different in a few places. And we think they were written in the early Uh, Second century, probably somewhere between 120 and 140. So that's what I mean about the Jewish Gospels. So they're probably not that remarkable or that unusual, like the later Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Peter or some of the Gnostic Gospels.
0: Mm, that's super interesting. So um, talking about some of these like interesting texts here that like aren't canonical such as like the Gospel of Thomas. Um, can you talk about like what becomes of the Gospel of Thomas and why isn't it a part of the New Testament?
1: Well, I don't think Thomas wanted to be part of the New Testament. That's really <laughs> funny. There's a book out there called A New New Testament okay <laughs> mm-hmm. And it thinks that oh well the Gospel of Thomas should be included. In fact, it should be the first Gospel which I find arrogant and foolish. Uh, And and what does the Thomas say? How does Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas begin? And and in this case, we have the whole thing because it was translated into the Coptic language, the Egyptian language, and then put in somebody's tomb. And that's why it survives the whole thing. Otherwise, we only have three small fragments adding up to about 22% of the whole text in Greek. But we have a Coptic translation of the entire thing And how does it begin? It starts off by saying these are the secret words that the living Jesus spoke and Judas Didymus Thomas wrote down. Well, Mm. this is normally secret stuff isn't canonized because remember, secret means you keep it a secret, you don't read it publicly. Mm. And books to be included in the canon are read publicly. So that's the Mm -hmm. problem. So this whole idea that the church excluded Thomas or, you know, there's some conspiracy going on is silly. It's wrongheaded from the very beginning. So whoever wrote Thomas didn't want it to be read publicly. And when he wrote it, when he wrote it toward the end of the second century, you know, say 180 or something like that, he knew perfectly well that secret books weren't canonical books because they couldn't be read in public. You know, it wouldn't be a secret book anymore. Yeah. You were reading it out loud in a public setting. So that's one of the things that's so silly about it. And most of these Gnostic writings, and Thomas at best is semi-Gnostic, the Gnostic writings like the Gospel of Mary or Gospel of uh, Philip or Gospel of Judas and so on, these were all secret writings. And so they, I don't think any of them claimed to be canonical. They weren't advocating, let me into the canon, you know. They presumed the canonical public books that were read, they'd say, come over here, you know, you've heard the public Jesus yeah. you know, that everybody knows. Now I got the secret Jesus for you. I'll give you the straight skinny. So come on over here in secret, you know, if you join our little tiny group. You get to read this and and really get smart and find out what's going on. So that's what that stuff. They, they never wanted it to be in the canon. That, that would undermine its whole purpose.
0: Huh. That's super interesting. Um, another thing you refer to in your book uh, along similar lines is what you call like a fifth gospel, the gospel of Peter. Um, so why is it called like the cross gospel? Um, an interesting name for it, at least I think. Um, and like why isn't the gospel of Peter in, included in our New Testament? Yeah, well. <laughs> okay, in the case of the Gospel of Peter, I think it was interested
1: in getting included in the canon. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, a, a, a bishop, uh, a, a guy named Bishop Serapion, uh, oversaw some churches in Syria, and he allowed the Gospel of Peter to be read, which huh. meant he thought it was okay and, and hmm. canonical. So go ahead and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Peter if you like. Hmm. Then he read it and found out what was in it and said, oh, wait a minute, just a second, hold it, stop, don't <laughs> do it anymore. Okay, so it was canonical for a little while and then lost out. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, oh, why man. Why do we call it the cross gospel? Well, first of all, Zach, we, we don't have all of it. We have a large chunk. It starts with Pontius Pilate washing his hands and letting Jesus be crucified. And then it goes, goes right up through the passion story to the resurrection We call it the cross gospel because the cross of Jesus comes out of the tomb when Jesus is resurrected. And, of course, the whole story is fantastic. Jesus' head reaches up into the clouds. Two angels come out with him. Their heads go up into the clouds. And this cross comes bounding out of the tomb following Jesus. And then the voice from heaven cries out, Have you preached to them that sleep, that is, to the dead? And Jesus doesn't answer. The angels don't answer, it's the cross. The cross, I guess, looks up to heaven and says, yes. So this, this is why it's called the cross gospel. And that was suggested by John Dominic Crossan, a scholar who worked on it 35 years ago. Hmm. And He tried to argue that this story was the original story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are based on it. And nobody buys that today. I'm not sure if Crossan himself buys it anymore. Hmm. No, it what the, the, the gospel of Peter was written in the middle of the second century And its purpose was to answer the skeptics, like Celsus. Celsus is going around saying, why should we believe that Jesus was really significant, a son of God, or resurrected in a special way? Who saw all this? Hysterical women. This woman that used to have an evil spirit, Mary Magdalene, from a wretched village. He doesn't know what he's talking about, by the way, because Mary Magdalene was from Magdala, which was like Newport Beach, if you know anything about California. Nobody had called Newport Beach or Laguna Beach a wretched little village, but anyway, he didn't know that. And on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, Magdala, before it was destroyed by the Romans in 66, 67 A.D., was a fantastic town. So she was from an upscale uh, waterfront property. <clears throat> and she, and of course he says, Oh, well, who who is she? Who cares what she thinks? He's very chauvinist. Women don't count, you know, they're terrible witnesses. And so what the gospel of Peter is doing is saying hey just a minute i can tell the story differently <clears throat> the historic the, the risen jesus appeared to jewish elders to all the roman soldiers to the roman centurion actually gives him a name calls him petronius hmm. and they all went and told pilate why then the whole city of jerusalem comes out and runs to the tomb they see angels coming up and down from heaven and everything else and so I think what the Gospel of Peter is is reckless, apologetic. It's very exaggerated. It's trying to answer the question of why should we believe Jesus is divine? Why should we believe he's resurrected? Because he, everybody saw him get resurrected. Hmm. And he had divine features. I mean, my gosh, his head went up into the clouds. Only a god could do that. So hmm. that's what the Gospel of Peter is. It's not historical. It's just reckless, second-century apologetic. And the church was wise to see it for what it was and say, forget it. You're not getting into the New Testament.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, I have a couple more questions for you, and then we're going to go to a little bit of Q&A at the end here. Um, but there's very little in the Gospels about like the childhood of Jesus, which is something so interesting because I think so many people wonder, like, well, what happened between like when he was born and when he's 30 and he's beginning his ministry? Um, so why do you think there's such silence in the Gospels about um, the, the childhood of Jesus?
1: Well, it's a good question and I'm not surprised at all because Jesus's ministry gets underway as an adult. And uh, the New Testament teaches the incarnation meaning that Jesus's humanity is real and that would mean his childhood is real and and so there's a natural tendency later and you see this in the 2nd and 3rd centuries to exaggerate Jesus's childhood. <laughs> so So you get all this speculation about Jesus as an infant healing people, doing amazing things, miracles, and so on. That's fiction. There's only one story we have in the Gospels, the first century Gospels. That's Jesus as a 12-year-old who gets left behind when his parents join the caravan to go back up north to Galilee after Passover. Jesus hangs around in Jerusalem. There he is a day later. They find him, and he's in the temple precincts with the teachers, it's interesting again this is an example of restraint if the gospels wanted to exaggerate they knew the gospel writers knew perfectly well that there were all kinds of legends and stories about moses about roman emperors prodigies when they were you know young kids they <coughs> they did all kinds of amazing things if you if you're not committed to truth if you're not committed to history why not make up a bunch of stories about jesus as, in fact, some did 100 years, 200 years later in what we call the infancy gospels. Mm. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't do that. And so you have only one story with Jesus as a boy. And what does he do? He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't make clay pigeons fly. He's in the temple discussing theology and Bible with with the professors. Mm. That's it. And Mary treasures this in her heart. So if you were to find the historical Mary and say, what do you remember about Jesus when he was a young lad? She'd say, man, he was keen about scripture and theology. And he liked to talk about God. That's what I remember. This stuff later when he's a boy and can stretch boards and make clay pigeons fly and do all kinds of strange things. That's a, that's the same kind of imagination like we see in the gospel of, of Peter. That's just reckless, apologetic and imagination. And the church was wise to say, that's baloney. It has no place in the Bible.
0: So you, you kind of end this book by talking about how um, you, you can really just have, like there's not room for much doubt with regards to the Christian canon. Like we have a very solid understanding of what's going on here. Um, so does that what does that mean? And like does that mean that we can trust the Bible completely? Yeah, well,
1: it does. And, of course, the Bible invites serious uh, study. Uh, the real question about the Bible is understanding it. It isn't so much the historicity. I mean, you know, the historical parts of the Bible are well established with other historical records and archaeology. That's why I confidently talk about the Gospels. They exhibit verisimilitude. If they were pious fictions, like some of these later Gospels, then they wouldn't exhibit verisimilitude. You know, they. but um, what do I mean by that? Well, They talk about real places, real people, real events. And we can confirm that by other sources, including archeology. span So I know a bunch of archeologists. I'm going to Israel later in the year and to film a documentary. And we'll we'll interview a whole bunch of archeologists. Most of them are not Christians. Uh, Some of them don't necessarily believe in God, but they all make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Book of Acts, and and the Jewish historian Josephus. Why? Hmm because those guys are accurate. They talk about real people, real places, real things. And so no archeologist would fail to consult the gospels when he's getting ready to dig in a certain place. And he's got 50 to 100 volunteers who will dig for the next four weeks in a certain place. They're gonna move tons and tons of debris. Uh, There's a lot of expense. You're not gonna dig in a wrong place. You're not gonna dig somewhere and you have no idea if there's anything there to find. Mm -hmm. So archaeologists, and I know this from experience, archaeologists regularly make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, and the Book of Acts regularly, even if they're Jewish or agnostic or whatever, they make use of the Gospels. Why? Because they find them accurate. Hmm. They find them reliable. So they use them to help them know where to dig and how to understand what they dig up. Well, man, to me, that's a big vote in favors. They don't have a dog in the fight, or as you mm. said, a horse in the race. It's like, well, I'm not a Christian, you know, I'm just this guy, I'm an archaeologist, but I'm not going to have a hundred people dig in the wrong spot yeah. and move 20 tons of earth and it's all for nothing. I want to be sure we're digging in the right place. So I will use whatever sources help me find the right place and understand it correctly. Oh, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John And the book of Acts are sources that do just that. And so they use them even though they don't go to church or don't necessarily worship Jesus or believe in God. And to me, that is a real indicator that the Gospels are, in fact, recognized as accurate and reliable.
0: Hmm. That's super helpful and super informative to think about. So thank you about that. Um, What we're going to do now is go to a little bit of Q&A. So I've seen a couple questions, and if there's a little more, um, we're going to do about for the next 10 minutes here. Um, But Susan has a super chat. So thank you so much for supporting the show and your super chat, Susan. Um, And it says, does Dr. Evans believe that the gospel writers were felt free to add, delete, or change the time of events or put words in Jesus' mouth that he did not say for theological reasons, such as like the I am statements?
1: No, I wouldn't. That's going way too far. I don't say that. Um, they, they're they not putting words in his mouth. They're taking, they're paraphrasing. I mean, you know, if you can get real pedantic about it. Um, the gospel writers write Jesus's words in Greek. I think Jesus could speak Greek, but I think most of his teaching, maybe all of his teaching was Aramaic. So just because they translate, and anytime you translate, if you know anything about two or more languages, you know, if you you know if, Susan, if you speak Spanish or something like that or German, you realize there's always paraphrase that goes on to the idea is to be accurate to get the right meaning, not so much word for word. So I mean, that would be terrible to say that, oh, you're putting words in Jesus's mouth, you're putting all these Greek words in his mouth that he never spoke, well, nobody would think that. Mm -hmm. So that's not putting words in his mouth. Uh, Second and third century people do, where they have Jesus teach things that he never taught. So that's not what I'm talking about. So what I'm talking about is uh, in translating Jesus' Aramaic (laughs) teaching into uh, Greek, which is what the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the original Gospels are written In Greek, uh, there is paraphrasing that goes on. There is interpretation, but it's not to put words in Jesus' mouth. It's to make sure that his words are correctly understood, that the meaning, what he was talking about in context, is correctly understood. And so that's all. That's all that I mean by that.
0: Mm, that's very helpful. Um, another question here from BDS, which says, um, what's the best way to respond to the idea that like Jesus did not exist or that like Yahweh is just a pagan God. Um, what are your thoughts here, Dr. Evans? Cause I know there's very rich scholarship on Jesus mythicism, right?
1: Yeah. And you know, BDS, thank you for the question. I, I wrote an article on mythicism in uh, Christian scholars review. Oh, I don't know about four years ago. And, uh, if you, if you send an email to Zach, Uh, with a request. I'll send that paper to Zach and he can send it to you. But it's in Christian uh, Scholars Review, or Christian Scholars Journal, I think is the name of it. i tell you that mythicist thing, uh, you need a lobotomy. I mean, my goodness, that is so sad. And there are, you know, literally thousands of historians around the world, many of them not necessarily Christians, not necessarily theists and they think it's the stupidest thing going. You have to ignore all of the evidence, everything. Everything becomes either false or manipulated. It turns into a grand conspiracy of some sort. (coughs) I debated uh, Richard Carrier, oh, when was it? I think it was in, oh, five years ago, maybe, in Atlanta. And what I challenged him with was, well, if, Jesus didn't exist. How do you have so many people talking about him when, in the very time he didn't exist? I mean, you, you need some kind of time. You need at least a hundred years. You you need some kind of a gap. Mm-hmm. And yet, Paul himself, the apostle Paul, whose letters, the authentic letters, are not disputed, and all we have to do is talk about two of them, the one called Galatians and the one called First Corinthians. And Richard Carrier does not. Um, dispute the authenticity of those two letters. He does not doubt that there was a real Paul and that he wrote those letters. Well, the guy wrote those letters, you know, late 40s, early 50s, and he's talking about Jesus's family and his original apostles, Peter and John and others, and he talks about the Lord's brother, James. Mm. Well, as Bart Ehrman, I mentioned Bart Ehrman because, right, he's an apostate, he's not a Christian, right? Right. and he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And he concluded, well, of course he existed. The evidence for Jesus' existence is simply overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And he says something that I think is wonderful. I love, and I know Bart personally. He said, if Jesus didn't exist, you'd think his brother James would have known that. (laughs) Good point. point. And Paul (laughs) knows him. And, of course, what Richard Carrier says is, well, he calls him brother, but it's metaphysical. It's kind of we're all brothers. Yeah, well, that's not what's in the New Testament. Mm. There's only one person called the brother of Jesus or brother of the Lord, and that's James. Nobody else. Paul calls him that. He doesn't call Peter the brother of the Lord. He doesn't call John the brother of the Lord or Barnabas the brother of the Lord, just James. So that argument doesn't work. And that's why nobody doubts that Jesus existed. The Gospels, again, exhibit verisimilitude. They're talking about real people, real places, uh, and and Jesus is real too.
0: Hmm. so one thing I wonder here um is like what like if you if you're gonna like hold like some sort of criteria um like with your historical methodology where you get to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't exist, like when you get into like antiquity, how many people could you actually believe like with certainty that like they exist? Like if you doubt like say the existence of Jesus, are you gonna have to doubt like Julius Caesar or like Augustus? Like like how do you like how far do you go if you kinda go with this like crazy skeptical methodology? <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's almost a form of solipsism in philosophy where it's like, well, I know I exist, but I don't know if anything else exists. And that's really dumb. That's a dumb way to argue. And uh, if you want to be consistent with that kind of skepticism, where four first century biographies don't count, where Paul's letters don't count, where Josephus doesn't count either, early second century Greco-Roman writers don't count either, and on it goes. In other words, you dismiss all the evidence. No evidence is high enough, measures up to your great, you know, glorious, illustrious standards. Well, then you just as well write off all of ancient history. You may as well throw out uh, Alexander the Great. I mean, the evidence for Jesus is more compelling than Alexander the Great. So mm. what do you do? And, and and of course, I've had mythicists say, well, you'd think if Jesus was so important, as everybody thinks he is, that there'd be more first century stuff. Well, again, there's anachronism behind that. The mm. huge importance of Jesus becomes known throughout the Roman Empire by the fourth century. But why would we expect fourth century sensitiv- sensitivities and knowledge to be available and known throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. I mean, it's anachronistic. So stop and think about it. You've got four first century biographies talking about Jesus. Do you realize the only other people from antiquity that are equal to that or close to it are Roman emperors? Hmm. So Jesus compares rather well, actually, when you think about it. We know an awful lot about Jesus, and he's somebody from an obscure village from Galilee, and yet he compares rather well with the first century Roman emperors. So, you know, what do you expect? And so when you start raising the bar so high and demand that kind of proof and evidence and so on, you're playing a double game, a double standard. It doesn't have to be that high for others. But for Jesus, super high. Oh, really? So if you're consistent, then either you throw out all of history or you don't want to do that, then you leave Jesus in history.
0: Mm, That's super interesting. Um, But we are around at the end of our time here, Dr. Evans. So do you have anything like last thoughts, things you didn't didn't get to say um, before we wrap things up here?
1: Well, I, I, I think I could wrap it up by saying, look, the evidence for the existence of Jesus is simply overwhelming. And that's recognized around the world. So if you want to join the mythicist crowd, you're joining a weird cult. Please understand that. You're, you're, you know To believe Jesus exists doesn't mean you have to be a Christian or even believe in God, okay? Mm. The other thing to know is that the Gospels are early. Their manuscripts are early. Their manuscripts are numerous. They show that they're written by competent scribes, know what they're doing. There really is no question about what the Gospels originally said, and they are so early, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, so early that the idea they're full of stories and things Jesus never really did or never really said would be exposed for the fraud they would be because they're just so early. There are too many people still living, too many people that remember what Jesus said did. And by the way, don't forget, why does anyone follow him? If he really is just an ordinary guy who couldn't seem to say anything that anyone could remember and he didn't do anything and he wasn't resurrected either, why are we even talking about it? There were plenty of people that did nothing and then died. They don't have any following. There were plenty of people, Josephus tells us about them, who made big claims and they got killed and that was the end of their movement. But there's only one. Jesus, who who did things and said things and amazed people and was raised up and turned his whole otherwise defeated movement, turned it around, converting not only his own following but indifferent people and even enemies like Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle. So think it through. And get a good grasp of the big picture. And I think you'll see, hey, the Gospels tell a very compelling and well-backed-up story.
0: Hmm. Well, it's been so much fun having you on, Dr. Evans. I encourage everyone, um, great book here. I've just started reading it, but it's so much fun. Jesus in the Manuscript, so it's definitely worth reading. Um, So I encourage everyone to check that out. I forgot to link it below in the beginning, but as soon as we're off here, I'm going to link it down in the description. Um, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon or anything like that. Um, So I encourage everyone to check out that book. Um, And if you enjoy our channel, always feel free to subscribe to Adherent Apologetics on YouTube or podcast. Uh, And if you enjoy this show, just hit a like on your way out. And if you enjoy our content, you can support us on patreon.com slash Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. Your support means a lot. Uh, But Dr. Evans, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun talking with you. So just thank you.
1: You're very welcome, Zach. Glad to do it.
0: And thank you, everyone who tuned in. Michelle, Susan, um, J. Mike, BDS, everyone else. Have a good one, and God bless.